So welcome back to Close to the Vest. My name is Arthur Ettinger, where we talk about all things relationship and divorce related. Um, I am happy and honored to have today as my guest, um, a longtime friend and well-respected colleague, Mark Gottlieb. Mark, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Arthur. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, So Mark is a forensic accountant and uh, in divorce, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, um, you need forensic accountants in divorce. And um, Mark, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your background? Sure. Well, I'm... I'm a CPA. I have a master's degree in tax, and I have a variety of credentials in business valuation and forensic accounting. And I appreciate that you introduced me as a forensic accountant, and, and most attorneys do introduce me to their colleagues and their friends in that fashion. But the truth is, is that I'm in the, the financial literacy business. My job is to sit with attorneys like yourself and help them get through the financial composition of their case. It could be a divorce case like uh, the area of practice that you focus in, but it could be other areas also. But uh, you're right. A lot of the work that we do is involved in, in the divorce arena. So for people that don't know this, can you just explain a little bit what's the difference between just say an accountant and a forensic accountant? Well, by definition, the term forensic means preparing for court. That's what a forensic accountant does. Uh, other accountants could be tax preparers. They could be uh, compliance accountants in which they prepared um, uh, books and records, payroll tax returns, income tax returns, financial statements, or even audits. Uh, our job as a forensic accounting firm and valuation expert is not to do any of that work, but actually use that type of work to assist in the exercise that we're hired to do. And the forensic accounting exercise, and particularly in the areas of a divorce, varies from case to case. It even varies based upon if we're hired by the attorney that represents the keeper of the checkbook or, the, or what you guys call the outspouse. So, um, and that could be either the business owner or the non-business owner. So it really depends upon, our function depends upon who's hiring us. Um, and I want... That's a great, great point. I want to get to that. Um, Let's say someone comes in, they hire a lawyer. They come in, they hire me, and they're like, okay, I hired my lawyer. And now they're hearing this. They're like, holy shit, I just hired a lawyer. Now I I have to hire a forensic accountant. So can you just speak to that? Why someone would come in um, like yourself um, early on in the divorce process Uh, and get involved as a forensic accountant? The truth is is that in our practice, the vast majority of the cases that we're involved in are in cases in which one of the owners has a business or when the parties have an extraordinary lifestyle or when there are issues that have to be attended to like uh, separation of property. Or, or the separate property claim, or dissipation of assets. When two earners, wage earners, getting divorced, two teachers, two, two uh, um, police officers, 
something like that, there may not be an, a need for a firm like us to come on board because the the financial issues probably relate simply to the division of the assets that they have. It could be a pension. It could be a house. It could be cars. And so there may not necessarily need to be any investigation or analysis that attends to the fair market value of those assets or the tracing of those assets or the collecting of the data that's needed to allow the attorneys and sometimes the court understand how the equitable distribution should be based upon. So that's why we're not for every divorce. And as far as when we're hired, well, quite honestly, it depends upon the first thing is the financial ap uh, appetite of the litigant. Sometimes people are very resistant to hiring accountants right away. Sometimes they have a, um, a feeling, oh, as soon as my wife or my husband gets notification, I want a divorce, we'll settle real quick. We call that fantasy. Okay. And, and, and other times it, it really depends upon the, the tone of the attorney that's working on the case and, and the issues that are evident right then and there. You know, you, you mentioned tracing. What do you, what do you mean by tracing? Well, there are various issues that may be at hand in a, in a divorce case. First of all, people may come with assets prior that they own prior to the marriage, whether they acquired it um, from their employment before they got married, or maybe they inherited it, or they received gifts. That's generally uh, called separate property, as you know. Okay, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but but at times those assets are commingled, or they're used, or they're or they're um, com consolidated with other assets. And so we're often asked to trace these assets in order to assist everybody to understand where these assets were prior to the marriage and where they are now. And sometimes the answer is real easy, and sometimes it's not. I, I must tell you that the mo one of the most difficult parts of doing forensic work when we're talking about a tracing exercise is when we have a dissipation of a marital asset. And a dissipation could be not necessarily that one of the parties takes it and buys a, a fancy car with it or goes on vacation, but, you know, people have vices. They could be gambling. They could be, have drug issues. They could have boyfriends and girlfriends. They could have separate lives altogether. And so this issue, this tracing issue that we're trying to discuss very simply for our audience here, could be a very complicated sure. and could be and could be rather time consuming and expensive to kind of figure out. So now when you talk you were talking about paramours and I know what you're talking about but if you could just elaborate for um the audience because this is really uh we deal with this a lot. And so I just want you to just kind of dive a little deeper as to what you're referring to. Are you asking me if I have a girlfriend? Uh, no, we already oh. know you have a girlfriend. <laughs> I, I, I'm just asking you. So I guess what I'm what I'm saying is just explain. Like it, it's easy to to trace out. You know, uh, an asset moves from one bank account to another. But you're talking about the paramour. I'm going to give you a perfect example. We worked on a case uh, recently in which 
the couple was married for about 15 years. They just had one child. They lived in, in an apartment in one end of Brooklyn. And the wife insisted that she didn't know what was going on, but she insisted that the husband was having an affair. She had no idea to the extent he was having an affair. So what we did was we actually um, reviewed the um, net worth statement that the parties had filed. And the husband and the wife each listed the various bank accounts that they were aware of. And one of the accounts had um, very little money, but a lot of activity. It happened to have been the account that the husband had automatic deposits from his employment. And we start to review that account. And, you know, we, we use, we laid it out in Excel. And Excel is a great program. Right? It doesn't replace an account, but certainly enhances our ability to analyze the data. And we were able to identify in the column the date of the transactions. And we, we entered all the deposits and we entered all the checks. And in order to reconcile the account, we entered all the ATM withdrawals because we wanted to know how the money went up and down throughout sure. the year. And when we actually used the, the feature in Excel that could identify the date by the day, like Sunday sure. and, the, and, the, and the actual day, and we laid it out, we noticed every Friday the husband would take out significant amount of money from the bank account. When we further went back to the accounts to look at the ATM withdrawal, we noticed that all of those Friday deposits, all those Friday withdrawals came from the same bank account at the other end in Brooklyn. And when we analyzed it and we asked the husband about it, it turned out we had discovered that the husband had a girlfriend who lived in the apartment house above the bank where he used to go to the ATM machine. And he used to leave work on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, go to that ATM machine on his way to his girlfriend's apartment, and he took out money because he was supporting this woman. That's fantastic. Well, not so much for, for the w wife. You know, she right. was pretty upset. But that's a perfect example of us tracing the work, right? We identified where it happened. And it was clearly a dissipation of a marital asset. And, you know, I, I'm not the lawyer, but I'll, I'll tell you how I perceive a dissipation of an asset is when the asset's used for not the family, not the couple. Sure. But it's used for one or the other. And, again, it doesn't have to be because they're buying jewelry or they're buying uh, um, going on vacation. This guy was paying his girlfriend's rent. And in order to get thousands of dollars a month, he'd have to, every Friday, take out cash. And so oftentimes I see it's never a, a perfect scenario where you have just all the documents lined up perfectly. There's typically holes, right? Whether it's missing statements, um, you don't know if this is a cash withdrawal. So how do you, how do you deal with those, um, let's say, struggles when you're putting together your analysis? Well, first of all, the holes often come or are often apparent when 
the income that is generated by the family is not all recorded. So there's a different type of exercise when we are working, when we're doing evaluation of a, of a guy who owns um, a professional practice, like a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, as opposed to someone who owns a candy store. And so we had mentioned before the net worth statements, and very often when we have a couple that is uh, that they own a, a cash business and they prepare their net worth statements, there is often a gap or a difference between their lifestyle. One party says they spend a lot of money. The other party says we don't have to spend a lot of money. And that's why often when, when you have these preliminary conferences in the court, you know, just like you, because you attend those more often than I do. But there's an argument that support should be based upon what their lifestyle is, not necessarily what they're making, because what they're making may not reflect what they're really spending. That's right. So, so the issue is, is how are we going to figure this out? Certainly there are gaps, but, you know, if someone's income is all on the books, there's one approach. If someone's income is not all on the books, then there's another approach. And so that's really where the, the, the distinct difference is in the, in the approach and the valuation analysis or the, but I'm sorry, that's not really correct, what the forensic analysis has, has to, has to um, follow. You mentioned before your job changes depending on what side you represent. And so can you just elaborate a little bit if you were to be representing or being retained by the, let's say, the title uh, spouse versus the non-title spouse? I can, but let me just say one thing first. When I get a call from an attorney that says, Mark, I'm interested in hiring for a divorce case, and he starts to he or she starts to tell me about the case, I say, stop. Don't tell me who you represent. Tell me what the issues are. And at the end of the conversation, we'll exchange our thoughts. Then you can tell me if you represent the husband, you represent the wife, you represent the moneyed spouse, you represent the non-moneyed spouse, because it's unfair to, to, to tell me in the beginning because I want to have a clear understanding of how we should approach it. The issue is not that I'm trying to, or we as a team, the lawyer and the accountant, are, are trying to um, have multiple fashions of, of, of approaches. We want to take an approach that meets the needs of the client. Certainly in an instance in which the wife is the earner and the husband is a, a, um, um, a salaried employer, and makes much less than the wife, and the wife is in charge of all the books and records, and you know she, there's a there's a distinct difference between the opinion of the lifestyle. We have to figure out why, and it's it's not always clear. The problem is, is that we have to do it in a very transparent fashion, because we want to prepare for war and hope for peace. We want to be able to cite a position cite the facts, cite an analysis, use assumptions if we need to because of lack of information or gaps information, as you said, that the trier of fact, the judge, or, or a referee, or, or even a mediator sometimes, would be able to look at and say, okay, you know, I, I understand what the issues are, and here's the conclusion. 
you know, I, I'm I'm a little bit older than you, Arthur, and 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 no, you're not. Yeah, a little bit, and 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 I can tell you, at my age, my fantasies today are much different than my fantasies when I was in my twenties. Okay, my fantasy today. I didn't realize when I was asking you to come on here that we were going to talk about your fantasies, but this is probably <laughs> a lot more interesting than what we were going to talk but about. But the point I'm trying to make to you, my fantasy is that when we do prepare an analysis, and the analysis pre- includes both the exhibits that crunch the numbers, okay, which is what you want from us. But also it contains the narrative, which is the story of what really the numbers mean. Whether you are the plaintiff's counsel or the defendant's counsel or the plaintiff or the defendant and the judge, my fantasy is that you'll read and say, okay, you know, I understand what Gottlieb's saying. I understand how he comes to his conclusion. I don't necessarily have to agree with everything he says, but it's very transparent. It's straightforward and it means something to us, and we can discuss the areas that maybe are subject to modification. So I think it's important for those people who have valuation issues in their case or tracing issues, and we have to get uh, you involved. Um, I think it's important to touch upon there are two different uh, ways it can be handled. Uh, We retain you as our own expert or the neutral. And um, I know what I like, and that's when I retain you on my own. Um, But if you can, before we get to what I like, tell I'd like you just to explain to the audience the difference between those two scenarios. Well, you're right. Sometimes we're hired by the litigants directly. Uh, And when we're hired by the litigants directly, we're sometimes hired as an expert and sometimes hired as a consultant. When you're hired as an expert, whether by the litigant, by by the plaintiff or the defendant, everything that I touch, smell, feel, and see is open for discovery. As opposed to if I'm hired as a consultant under the umbrella of the attorney, whether it be for the plaintiff or the defendant, I, I'm the, everything is, uh, is covered or protected under attorney-client privilege. And there are reasons why we're hired first as a consultant or hired as an expert. I prefer to be hired as a consultant first. And then when we're at the eve of issuing our report, then we can change our relationship and we're the expert. And the reason, quite honestly, for that is very simple. You can fire me if we're the if you hire me as a consultant, and I find something you don't like. That's right. Okay, but if I'm hired right away by an expert, they're going to find out. They're going to find out. That's one scenario. The other scenario is when I get a call or a fax or an email from the uh, court attorney from Judge A, B, C, or D, and say, "Mark, are you available?" To work as a neutral on this case in which you will be retained by each party right from the start uh, and we need you to do X, Y, and Z. And when we are hired by the, while we appointed as a neutral expert, we're automatically an expert and everything is open for, dis- for discovery and 
we're hoping that this will lend itself to a more transparent and an easier and sometimes even a less expensive exercise. I don't believe in that. In fact, I I, I believe the opposite. You know what? I I understand why you say that, and I don't necessarily agree. I really would like to just offer to your audience that I would like to make that distinction on a case-by-case basis, not making a global, global answer. That being said, I do a tremendous amount of work as a neutral expert in, in, in various different counties and various different states. I don't really have a preference because I don't change the way I approach my work regardless. Just like I don't want you to tell me if you represent the, litigant, uh, let the, the plaintiff or the defendant right away, it doesn't make a difference to me if I'm court-appointed if I'm neutral or I'm hired by the other. I want to get the information. I want to analyze it. I want to I want to be able to provide the financial literacy components to the case that are important to have it resolved. Can you just touch upon the positives and negatives for both scenarios with respect to neutral or if you were retained by one side uh, as opposed to being court-appointed? Sure. So let's talk about being court-appointed or, or being neutral because often two attorneys will call me on a conference call and say, Mark, we're not doing this pursuant to a, an order by the court, but we'd like to hire you as a neutral right away, which is the same thing as being, a neutral, uh, being appointed by the court. Um, when you're neutral, you, you are hopefully going to receive the information from both parties in an efficient, timely, and complete fashion. And there's no, nobody's going to play around. Nobody's going to, to try to be deceitful. Nobody's going to try to delay the, the issue. That's the intent, right? And so the, the, the selling portion of the case or the, the selling of the neutral expert by the litigant, by the counsel, and even the court to say, listen, if you guys cooperate and do this in a fashion that you both participate, it will be less costly and quicker. That's what the neutral portion, the neutral concept is. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I must be honest with you, it, 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 it's really 50-50. Okay? There are also times that you're hired by one of the parties whether it be the, the keeper of the checkbook or the business owner or the non-moneyed spouse, okay? And in that instance, we're often running after documents, but we, we also may, in fact, be requested to do things that are above and beyond what the neutral forensic would do. In our practice, I do a tremendous amount of work helping with the discovery, preparing discovery document requests, reviewing and indexing the documents, preparing outlines for what it is. Invaluable. Um, preparing deposition questions, preparing cross-examination questions, preparing direct examination questions, not just of the parties, but other financial people that are involved. And so, you know, that's why I said I'm in the financial literacy business. My That's my job. And, and, that is probably one of the differences between our firms and several other firms that we compete with is my background and aptitude for doing that type of work. 
And, and that's one of the reasons why that's really our niche, okay? So that's really the, the, the big difference. I, I don't really know which one's better or worse. I, I, I know you have a very strong opinion, and, and, and it's really— No strong opinion. Yeah, and, and it's almost like if you ask, you know, you know uh, 11 priests one question about the Bible, you'll get 13 answers. So it doesn't make you right and me wrong or me wrong and you right. It, 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 the issue is, is that it really is on a case-by-case basis. I think that's I think that's true in a lot of respects. I my concern is you have a neutral and um in a neutral setting everything I say to you has to get copied to the other side. You really can't be communicating with me. You can't communicate with the other side uh unless uh, you're looking for documents and you're just sending uh, a joint letter or you're sending it to the titled spouse and you're copying, but there is to me, I think there's a an inherent um, breakdown of efficiency, and I think the concept is to create transparency with the neutral and to keep the cost down. But ultimately, the scenario you have, and I to your point, it's a case by case basis where you have a neutral, and then invariably some person is ticked off with the result, and now they're going to get another. Uh, their own expert, and then the other side says, well, I'm getting my own expert, and now instead of having the one, you have fucking three, excuse my French. So the whole point of keeping the cost down, you've actually, uh, you've multiplied it by three. I I can understand that. You know, we didn't mention this before, but since you kind of started to discuss it, it is not uncommon for us to be hired by one of the litigants when there is a neutral involved, and we are the conduit between the litigant and the neutral. And often we will work in a parallel fashion to help get that information and even do the analysis. Of course, a case when we're hired, in those instances, that case has to involve a significant amount of money because they are paying multiple experts. That's right. Um, Can you just, we're talking about costs. Can you just explain how you operate so the the listener who's about to embark on this process understands uh, what's involved uh, if they were to now bring in just another, you know, an expert. Our our practice bills no different than your practice. We bill by the hour. It's like being in a cab. We get a retainer. We work off the retainer. When the retainer is exhausted, we get an additional retainer. Um, it. What kind of cabs do you drive? <laughs> and and so and so, it, it it's it's no different from 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 the law firm, you know. It, it it's it's there there's very very few instances, if ever, that we do something that's on a flat fee basis because we don't know what's involved. Um, you know, that's our our business model. There may be others that do the type of work that we do that have a different business model, but generally the work that we do in connection with a matrimonial is either an existing or anticipated problem issue. And so we don't really know how much time we're going to spend. And so the only fair way to do it both for me and for the client is, is to charge by the hour. And I know you have extensive experience as, um, an expert witness at trial. Um, I firmly believe having, and my experience when you're involved in uh, a case, 
that you're really instrumental in settling a case. And I believe when there's, especially when there's two accountants, forensics, where they can communicate together, uh, more often than not, the case is going to get resolved. And I can, so can you explain to the audience how, you know, having a forensic account is actually going to help resolve the process as opposed to uh, ramp up the litigation? It really depends upon if people want it to be resolved. If people want it to be resolved, it will be. But oftentimes, people have to go through that process until they come to the conclusion, all right, it's time to resolve the case. Now, sometimes, and don't take this the wrong way, it comes from the attitude of counsel. Uh, I, I, I'm there to help facilitate the, uh, the closure of the marriage, and, and I'm happy to do that, but it's not really on, all on my shoulders. People have to want to, to have a conclusion. The, the lawyer is more important in that regard because the lawyer is going to guide the litigant, their client, that it has to be resolved. Nothing is perfect. The best day of getting a client is the day you get the retainer. It all goes downhill from that day because people get frustrated. It's a, it's a very, very, very strenuous, stressful period of their life. That being the case, counting the money is also stressful because people don't really know what's all going on. So I, I don't really, I don't want to take, I don't think it's my responsibility to resolve the case. It's my responsibility to give you, the attorney, the information you need to make an argument to help resolve the case. That's fair. And, and the truth is, no case is perfect. Nothing in life is perfect. Right? So. I'd be out of a job. It was perfect. Right. But, but, but no, no conclusion. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I can't recall the last case I had in which the conclusion was absolutely perfect. There's always some, there's always some give and take. Do you believe that there is a better time when uh, somebody should be reaching out to you to retain your services or consult with you? I think that the attorney has to take the temperature of the case. I think it's your job when you sit down for the first, second, or third time with the client, you've got acquainted with the client, you've got your retainer, gone through your initial questionnaire that, that identifies both the financial and non-financial issues. You have to take the temperature of the case to be able to say, okay, we need an accountant to help us right now. There are discovery issues. There are dissipation issues. There are valuation issues. Uh, there's lifestyle issues. It's, this is not going, you have to make the conclusion that it's not going to be a clear-cut case. There are some attorneys, thankfully, that will call us the minute they get a new case. And when they get hired, we get hired shortly thereafter. There are some attorneys that hire us two months later, right before, right after the first preliminary conference with the judge. It really depends. Again, my practice, which, which may or may not be similar to other people that do the type of work that we do, is generally not geared around 
two simple earners whose assets are, you know, the house, the, the, the pension plan, the cash and bank, and, you know, grandma's watch. That's okay. not, that's not what, there's no need for me there. And is there, for somebody out there who is not yet in the process, who's just woke up today, is thinking about leaving their bride or groom, is there something that they can do to prepare uh, for the process ahead? Well, before I answer that question, let me give you my opinion about divorce in general. No one ever wakes up and says, I'm getting divorced today. They dream about it. They fantasize about it. They act upon it. They may even outline the process they perceive is going to happen. The actual time that they call you and say, Mr. Enger, I got your name from my next door neighbor. I want to get divorced. That's not the first time that man or that woman had that notion. It, it may be months. Sometimes it may be years between um, from, from when they first sought to think about it till now, till when they call you. So it, again, I don't know. There's no one answer. I can tell you that there are instances in which my first meeting with um, our client, uh, they come with boxes of bank statements. And he or she will say, I've been collecting these statements for three years now. I have a case right now in which there were two owners, but the husband never, ever contributed to any of the, any of the household expenses for 10 years and change. We're now analyzing 10 years worth of bank statements and brokerage statements and summarizing and tracing the money because we want to we want to prove or disprove the fact that the husband has diverted all of his net wages over the length over the duration of the marriage. That wow. the wife is convinced of that. And I and I said to her, you understand this is very costly. She says, I am sure of it because I have been paying for everything from day one and there's no money. And the truth is, is that she's not wrong. And we're preparing our analysis so to counsel can go to the adversary and say, where's all the money? And by the way, I don't have to find out where the money is. I just have to know it's not there. That's right. That's not, that's not my job. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have a magic pen. I just have documents that say one thing or another. You just want to, that lawyer just wants to make sure you find something or, or that the other side doesn't know that you're on the case. Because I've had scenarios. I've had a case where you were even on it, and I know you were on the other side. And uh, thankfully, a report never showed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, the truth is your audience should know for as often as we have worked together, we've actually worked against each other more often. That's right. And, um, and we won't say who won or who lost more often. That, that wouldn't be fair, right? Okay. Um, I think it's, it's worth pointing out and asking you, like, how do you believe 
from your perspective as a forensic accountant with your background, how COVID has impacted um, at least uh, the divorce process from, from where you sit? Well, first of all, um, during the COVID time, I took it upon myself to review all of the cases I've done over my 30-year career, all my divorce cases, and I've come to the conclusion that 99.9% of all divorce is caused by marriage. <laughs> that is so old, man. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, seriously, um, the, COVID, the COVID time has put a tremendous strain on relationships. And what has happened is that um, when COVID first started, there was a drop in the number of divorces that were filed, obviously, whether that is because people were not getting divorced or the courts were not in process, not processing cases. I, I think you'll know better than I, and I can just tell you by the, the, the ringing of our phones in the office over the last two or three months, now that it's you know nine months past from the beginning of COVID, there's an increase in the an increase in divorces. Um, business owners are in fact claiming that their valuation of their businesses from from the coronavirus and COVID should be should take um, have a significance on the value. And that may or may not be correct. Okay. First of all, let's just review one thing. In New York State, when a, valuate, when a valuation is needed for a business in, in connection with the divorce, generally the valuation is done as of the commencement date of the divorce action. That's right. So if the divorce started prior to, was it the 16th of March? Is that the, like 14th, the, 13th? Right, the date that, that people are using? If the divorce commenced prior to that, that was prior to COVID, the fair market value standard says that you can only use what information which is known and knowable as of the commencement date of the divorce or the valuation date. So if we our valuation date, for argument's sake, is December 31st, 2019, and now it's 2020, you know, the business owner is now jumping up and down saying, hey, it's COVID, my business went down 50%. And the non-spouse is saying, yeah, but by definition, the valuation date is as of the commencement of divorce, which is 2019. It doesn't make a difference. So let's just, that's what's supposed to happen, okay? Have, I haven't seen a judge say, we're going to revisit this. Okay. And then everybody's just kind of, up in arms and fighting, and I think I'm seeing the judges just saying, "Go figure it out amongst yourselves." Um, just similar with the custody, they don't want to open up the fucking Pandora's box. Uh, I'm curious, are you seeing the same thing? I'm. I have yet to see a judge make an order that says to value the business other than a the commencement date of divorce action. I had have I have had conversations with judges and I have suggested that we do valuation dates, we do alternative valuation dates. 
Um, I don't know if the judge has accepted that, but at least it gives us the information because we don't know if there's a decrease in value. By the way, just so we understand, valuation is a prophecy of the future. That's what it is. And so if, that's, if, the, if we accept that as the definition or the axiom of the valuation process, the valuation, you know, what a prophecy of the future, are we saying that the business is always going to be down? No. So the answer is, is that we need to do some more due diligence to see how the business will um, rebound to better afford a more accurate value. But just to say that value of the business, the value of the business is, is always going to be less now because of COVID is, is, is absolutely incorrect. That is spoken like a, a long experienced expert witness. <laughs> no. Well, the, the truth is that we get that question all the time. And, and, and I know the judges are thinking about it and, you know, and, and the judges, um, don't have a uniform approach to it yet because it has to be done on a case by case basis. Like if you were in the business of, of, of manufacturing PPE, right, your business went up. Mm -hmm. But if you were, if you had, you know, a, a, a delicatessen that was at the bus stop that closed for six months, then that's not the same scenario. So I, I, listen, I, I know that people have different opinions on how to treat it. Um, there is no statistical data yet, nor, nor is it to be expected anytime soon to, to quantify the change in the valuation multiple that should be applied to the income stream, the value of business under the income approach. There's no data on sales of businesses that is currently available that took, 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 takes, takes into account the COVID area the COVID period. So the only variable of the valuation process that we can look at is cash flow. And that cash flow is not just going to be the cash flow of the nine months after the value, after COVID. It's going to be the cash flow that's anticipated in perpetuity after COVID, the start of COVID, which theoretically, hopefully, will include a period of rebound. You had me at hello. There you go. Um, but the funny thing is, is that I get this question all the time, and it, I sound almost robotic about it because I, I know that the attorney wants me to say, "Don't worry, the value of the business is worth nothing." Well, that's that's just wrong, and if someone says that to them, they're giving them bad advice, in my opinion. So you've been doing this a long time, um, juiciest story, divorce story as a forensic accountant? I'm in an office with a lawyer. It's the first time I'm meeting the client. This was before the lawyer, this was before the law was changed in which you know, New York is now a no-fault divorce. Prior to that, you'd had to have reason to get divorced. And we're going through, and the, 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 the woman who's our potential client, um, was a, um, a model. And she had a child from another relationship. She's married to this very, very wealthy guy. They lived in 
one of the top floors in the Times, um, Time Warner building mm-hmm. on the west side. She drove around in a in a uh, Rolls Royce with a chauffeur. The husband would travel a lot, and he would just leave every Sunday night ten or $15,000 in cash for the week, so she'd have money for the week. Not bad. And so the lawyer says to her, um, we need to put in the papers why you're getting divorced. And so um, she says, well, because I, I want to get divorced. He says, no, you, you have to have a reason. So she says, well, I don't know what to say to you. And he says, well, does he yell at you? And she says, oh, no, he's an absolute gentleman. He's never said a, cur- a, a coarse word to me our entire marriage. He's soft-spoken. He's eloquent. He has tremendous vocabulary. He's, he's just wonderful. The lawyer says, all right, do it another way. Has he ever hit you? And she says, hit me? I just told you he's he's a gentle, affectionate guy. He's he's soft and 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 he would never raise his hand to me. Has he ever hit your son? He's never he's never touched my son. He treats my son as his own son, and he has no other children, and so that's his really his own son. And the lawyer says, "Well, we have to think of something." And the lawyer says, "Does he make you do things you don't want to do?" And she says, excuse me, you know, does he make you do things that you don't want to do? And so she says, I don't really understand. And the lawyer says, you know, sexually. And she says, oh, no, no, we haven't had sex in years. And I said, oh, that's a shame. (laughs) That was my my story. Really? Yeah. So uh, the truth is, is that um, I didn't take on that case. Because there was nothing for me to do. And I don't know what happened with that case. All right. But but the truth is is that it, it was it was funny because that would have been a good, you know, dissipation claim to if you had to trace the fifteen thousand dollars in cash payments every Sunday. She just she just wanted she just wanted a divorce. Well, listen, I I am honored that you came. Um I am touched that you wore a vest for this podcast. Uh, Isn't that the I, name of the, the podcast? Exactly. What's it called, Dan? Close to the vest. Close to the vest. So here we I, go. I appreciate yeah. that. There you go. Um, I it's always great to work with you. I you put up with a lot of my shit, and uh, I consider you uh, a friend uh, first and foremost. So thank you. I want to remember that when you cross-examine me on the next case. Awesome. Be thank well. You. Thank you for inviting me.